Well, good morning, Grace Point. Oh, first service didn't do that. You guys had more coffee, so. Well, it's good to see you all. As Mike said, my name is Tiernan. Uh, some of you may know me personally. I have a couple friends in the room. Uh, some of you may know me as Mike kind of explained. Maybe you've seen me on like a slide where he talks about his family or something like that. But for those of you who have never met me and don't know who I am, there's a good likelihood that's because I'm an introvert. Um, to be 100% honest with you, social interaction kind of scares me. <laughs> so this sermon should go great today. <laughs> you know, we have, a, we have a phrase here at Grace Point where we say every member is a minister. And uh, I've taken that to heart and convinced Mike to let me into his uh, mentorship group, and I'm, I'm here today with you, which I am beyond thrilled and excited. Um, just a little bit about me. Um, I have a beautiful wife of four years, Jordan, and uh, we are currently living in the wonderful state of kids free, so we still have free time, so we're very much enjoying that. Um, A little bit of what I do, uh, I am a creative director at a video production company, which basically means that's a very long title, but it means that I get to make stories every day, and I love stories. I love going to other places, other cultures, and hearing people and how they interact with the world and connecting dots, and it's just a passion of mine. And uh, I've been really excited about a new form of storytelling uh, that's kind of gaining popularity and steam, and I'm talking about podcasts. Does anyone listen to podcasts when they're in the car? Show of hands. All right, a few of you. I love podcasts. So anytime I get in the car, I immediately put on a podcast so I can learn something between, you know, two meetings or if I'm driving somewhere from home to work or work to home or whatever. And recently, uh, as I was listening to one of my podcasts, uh, I heard a story. And it was interesting to me because it, it kind of sparked something in my imaginations that, that wasn't the usual story that we hear. And so I kind of want to start off and share it with you today. Um, so the story's about a man named Friedrich Hoffman. He was born in Germany in 1865 and uh, immigrated to the United States. And he got a job, worked really hard, and then eventually worked his, worked his way up to lead statistician at Prudential Insurance. Now that sounds like a very boring title filled with math, but let me kind of explain a little bit of what he did. So you got to remember back in these days, there was no internet, there was no like healthcare, there was no uh, Medicare, nothing. So what the insurance agencies had to do is they had to figure out what to, to price their product at. And to do that, they were, re, uh, relied on Frederick and his team. And so what he would do is he would go town to town, state by state, And he would visit houses, he would visit churches, he'd visit schools, places of employment. He'd even go to like cemeteries and hospitals. And he would ask one single question. He would say, how are people dying? It's a very morbid job. But he would ask how people were dying so that he could use this to kind of formulate everything and that the insurance company could set their prices. And so while he was doing that, kind of going across the United States, taking a survey of kind of everything that was ailing uh, the United States, he found something weird was happening. When he got into coal countries, he was noticing that the coal miners who were there, 
um, when they were in the mines, when they were out the mines, they would start to cough up these like black tar, tarry substance. I'm not going to show you a picture of it because it's gross. Uh, but basically, there was a debate on whether that was good or bad. And so he needed to figure out, yes, it's insanity, but this actually happened. So he talked to both sides of the camp. And so one side said, hey, the coal dust, no problem. And they gave two reasons why. They said, first, the coal dust is actually coating the inside of the lungs, so that way it protects you from tuberculosis. Wow. And then the other, then they also said, oh, and because they're spitting up all this stuff, like they're coughing up the goo stuff, that means their lungs are working. We would be really upset if they didn't cough it up. So that was their argument. But then the other side said, like, hey, no, this is, this is a big deal. Like, you're not supposed to breathe in coal dust. It may cause, like, asthma. I kind of see people dying around me, so maybe we should check this out. And so he took both opinions, and he said, you know what? I'm going to find out using math the fun way. And so he gets all his, does all his statistician stuff, gets a survey, talks to people, and then kind of compiles everything and puts it out in a note. And so he publishes this through Prudential Insurance uh, and then also in a scientific paper. And basically what the paper says is, hey, which we know today, duh, coal dust is bad for you. It shouldn't be in your lungs. Uh, he found that miners had higher rates of asthma, uh, that miners couldn't work in the industry for very long periods of time. In fact, most miners weren't working 10 years after they began in the mines because it was so bad for their health. And they were actually, instead of an, a decreased risk for tuberculosis, they had an increased risk because of how much damage they were doing to their lungs. So what do you think happened? Publishes the paper, everyone reads it. You think that the, you know, there was an upcry that says, hey, we need to do something about this. This is hurting people. This is killing people. We need to change. No. It's a tragedy, but no one did anything. They looked at him and said, hey, you don't, you don't have enough proof. We don't see scientific proof here. And so we're just going to keep on doing what we've been doing. And there's other stories kind of like this in our society where someone raises a warning flag and we just say, no, we'll ignore it. And I don't know why we do that, but I have a guess. You see, I I think they didn't change because they didn't want to change the way that things were because it was just easier to keep it the way it was. And it's sad because it cost people their lives. You know, as I think of this story and how Friedrich, you know, stuck up a hand and said, hey, this is, a, this is a bad thing. We need to turn around. This is a warning sign. Don't go further. We need to correct course and go this way. And how the people didn't listen. I think of a, a story very much connected to it, mirrored in it actually, um, by another German. And his name was Friedrich Bonhoeffer. And so he was just an incredible man. Uh, He was uh, a pastor in Germany. He was a theologian. He was a writer. 
Um, he also was a pastor during the time of when the Nazis took power. And so when they started their war, he actually became a spy against the Nazis. So he's a very fascinating man. I encourage you to read a book about him or anything you can find. But uh, Friedrich saw just in the same way that uh, Hoffman did that there was something wrong with the Church of Germany. You know, what once used to be the epicenter of faith in, in all of Europe, now it's crumbling. Where there once was evangelism, discipleship, sending out, now there was complacency, now there was apathy. And so he saw the total state of Germany the Church of Germany, and was like, hey, we've, we've got a problem. He stuck out his hand and said, we need to go the other direction because if we continue on this path, it's not going to be good. And so how he expressed this um, is he taught a sermon and then wrote a book about it. He did it through a phrase. And the phrase is, grace is free, but it is not cheap. That's a very complex phrase. Remember the first time I heard it, I was like, what? It takes a while to understand, but I kind of want to break it down. So grace is free. That's absolutely correct. Jesus died on the cross so that you could be saved without anything you have to do. You can't do works. You can't be good enough. You can't go to church enough. It's all God saving you. That's absolutely true. But grace is not cheap. How do we treat cheap things? Do we maintain them? If it breaks, do we want to repair it or we just throw it out? Do we revolve our lives around cheap things? No. Cheap things are cheap to us and they don't matter. And so the church of Germany was viewing the gospel at the same way. The gospel wasn't something that they revolved their entire life around. They just kind of viewed the church and Christianity as something they could kind of call themselves and like kind of stuck, put it away in their back pocket. Because it didn't mean anything to them. And so Bonhoeffer was saying, hey, we, we've got to go the other direction. What do you think happened? Well, we know what happened. No one listened. And if we look at Germany today, the latest statistics from the Joshua Project say that Germany is 2% evangelical. We used to be like the hub of Christianity in Europe. Now it's desolate. You know, I think of these two stories on how there were warning signs and people saying, hey, go back. Don't come the way. We can't continue on this course. We need to change. And, you know, I think that, I think about the times in the Bible where Jesus also says this, where there are passages that pierce us and say, hey, we can't continue living the way that we need to. We need to change courses. And today, I want to dive into our main text with you today, um, really to kind of break this down. So if you have your Bibles, uh, paper, electronic, uh, go ahead and uh, turn to John 4, 43 through 45. 
So while you guys are turning there, I just want to give a little context. Because I think it's good, because we're just going to read a very small passage here to get kind of an overview of the book that we're talking about. So right before this, John, his whole book basically has one thesis. And that thesis is to prove that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And how he does this is he shows time and time again how Jesus presents himself to the Jewish people, the people he came to, and they rejected him. And so we're going to take a look of an example of this, but right before this passage, we have the story of the woman at the well. Um, I encourage you to read it on your own. We don't have time today to go through it, but I'll give you just kind of a a thousand-foot overview of it. Um, So what happens? Jesus is walking through Samaria. He meets a woman. He says, hey, could you draw me some water? And she said, yes, and they get to talking. And then uh, he says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for living water so you would never have to come here again. And so Jesus is talking about something spiritual, but she perceives it as being physical. So she doesn't want to keep going to the well, you know, three times a day. So she's like, yes, give me this eternal water so I don't have to come back here. And he's like, no, you're missing it. I'm not talking about something physical. I'm talking about something spiritual. The hole in your life that you've tried to fill with adultery, I'm, I want to fill. And so he, he kind of presents the gospel to him, presents how he is the son of God, and she, she becomes saved and then spreads it to the entire village. So it's a great read. I encourage you to do it, but this is right after that. So let's, let's kind of read together. It says, after two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now, I'm going to be honest with you guys. If I was reading this in my quiet time, I would look at like the woman at the well, I'd read all that, and then i get to these two verses and I'd probably just like zip right through them. Just because they're kind of, you know, they're simple. They kind of tell where he's going. But there's a hidden message in here if we stop long enough to look at it. So let's kind of break it down. So he talks about going to Galilee, but then there's something very strange that he puts in parentheses. He says that prophet is not honored in his hometown. So what he's basically saying is Jesus saying, when I get here, they're not going to honor me. They're not going to treat me with respect. Yet, right after that sentence, he gets to Galilee and they welcome him. That doesn't make any sense. Like, why would he say, you're going to disrespect me? And then they walk in and they're, they're very happy to see him and they welcome him into the town. Well, for a clue, we've got to go to what, what they're talking about at the end of this. For they had seen him at the Feast of Jerusalem. And so we need to go there to figure out what they're talking about here. How he was, he was not honored, but he was welcome. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn back to John 2, 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Passover in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name 
when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. So what's happening here? Well, Jesus is at the feast in Jerusalem. He's healing people. And the Galileans, the people of his hometowns, are all about it. They're like, yes, we need healing, we need blessing. But Jesus withheld himself from them. What's that mean? Well, it means that Jesus did not share with them his teachings. Why? It's because they only wanted his miracles. They saw Jesus as a miracle worker, not a Messiah. They didn't want anything to do with what he was teaching on how to have eternal life. They wanted, they wanted their problems fixed immediately. And so if we turn back to that other passage, when it says in John 4, 43-45, when he comes to Galilee, he's saying, they're not going to welcome me. Why? They're only going to want what I can do for them. So they're throwing him a party as he's coming in because they're like, yes, Jesus is here. We've got all of our sick out here. Please bless all of us. We're going to take care of everything here. But Jesus said, no, you're, you're missing it. They're not honoring me because they're, they're missing it. They're missing the mission that I have for them. No, I think we do this. Not only the Galileans, but we act this way sometimes. Where we love the things that God does for us, the stability, the, the blessings, the prayer, the healings. And we miss that God is more than that. And I think this all stems really from one issue. And that's kind of the first warning I want to give to you today. Warning number one. It's not about us. You know, the Galileans, when they saw Jesus coming, what were they thinking of? They were thinking of themselves. How could we use this man, how could we use his powers to benefit ourselves? I think sometimes I do the same thing with my faith. I make my faith about me, so I pray for things like, oh God, please like, let me have a new boat so I can go out on the lake and enjoy it and enjoy your nature. That's, that's not something that's God-focused. That's me-focused. I think these really break down into three categories of really how we do this in our faith. How we turn the Bible around and make it about ourselves. And the first is we have bought into a false prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel is the idea that Jesus is only here so you can be wealthy, happy, healed, and whole. And we see this in you know remote villages in Africa. I've been at places where, where Africans will stand up and say, I believe in Jesus, so why aren't my crops growing? Because they believe that there is a direct correlation with, if you accept Jesus in your heart, you will be rich. 
It's rampant. But unfortunately, I think that's translated across all cultures, and we even have that today. We have all spectrums of this. Some people who say, God only wants you to be happy. He doesn't want you to hurt. He doesn't want you to go poor. All he wants for you is your happiness. Or maybe it's a little bit more subtle. Maybe we come to church. Maybe we pray. But maybe we do all those things so we can get something from God. Maybe we're going through a hard situation and we're like, okay, I need to pray. I need to read my Bible more and pray so that maybe God will help fix this situation. No, I've done that. But you see, that's backwards of what it needs to be. Just like the Galileans, we only want God's blessing in our lives, not God's mission for our lives. We do this sometimes when we take verses like Philippians 4.13. Who's heard of that verse? Yes? Good show of hands. I know Tim Tebow at one time had them kind of like plastered when he was playing college football. You'll see it at like signs at football games, but... Basically, that verse says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I would bet you about 95% of the time when you hear that, it's completely out of its context. So how we use it kind of flippantly is we say, oh, you know, I'm really struggling in school, but Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Oh, I'm, I'm really struggling at work. I really want that promotion, so I've got to work harder. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No. I mean, what we're doing there is we're taking Scripture and we're pointing it back at us. The real Scripture, if you go back and read both sides of Philippians, it's Paul talking about how he can suffer for the gospel. And so what he's saying is, I can be dirt poor. But by God's power, I can still share the gospel. You know, I think we do this. We do this because we don't like pain. It's uncomfortable. And I know that sometimes we think that God doesn't want us to suffer, to be in pain. He only wants us healthy. But scripture is chock full of examples where that's, that's like far from the truth. We'll just go through like a couple real quick. Matthew 24, 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Philippians 1, 29. For it has been given to you on Christ's behalf, not only for you to believe in him, but also for you to suffer for him. 2 Timothy three twelve. Indeed, all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You see, we have shaken off the, the Christianity that talks about this, and we have settled for a dumbed-down version of a prosperity gospel when God only wants us healthy, fed, and wealthy. But in fact, God has called us to so much more. You know, we do this sometimes, too, when we read ourselves into the Bible. Point two. I know I'm guilty of this. I'll share a quick story. When I was young, uh, I loved the story of David and Goliath. It's a great story about, you know, a kid who was able to defeat a giant. And what I would do is I would put myself in the situation of David. 
I'd say, oh, I can, I can conquer the math test just like David conquered Goliath. But that's reading myself into the Bible. I'm not the hero of that story. David's not the hero of that story. The hero of the story is God. David could do nothing apart from God. And so it was only God who gave David the ability to beat Goliath. So I can't read myself in that story and think of myself as the hero. No, the hero of that story is God. You know, the third thing we do, which is the most deadly, is we make salvation about us. You know, I remember when I was young, I had a view of salvation that said that Christ died on the cross and died and saved me because somehow he wanted to spend eternity hanging out with me. That's honestly what I thought. How narcissistic is that? Like I'm something special that the God of the universe would just want to hang out with me. Now it's true, God loves every single one of us, deeply. But we've flipped salvation to be about us when salvation is actually the complete opposite, where God saved me, not so that I could be something or I could spend eternity, but so that I can make God known among the nations. You see, it's not about what I can get out of Christianity. He saved me so I can make his name known and glorified. Is that for you too? You know, I think this all culminates where we tend to flip stuff because we think it's all about us. But really, it's all about God. And that's warning too. See, we have everything turned around. And the reason you are here today and everything in your life, the Bible, everything has one sole purpose, and that's to glorify God. And so we need to work to filter our lives through this, that we don't use Christianity as a way to get something out of it for our sake, but we flip it and say, no, What I'm committing to when I become a Christian is dying to my will. It's dying to my my wants and my dreams and getting on the path that God has for me and making his name known. You know, this conflicts with one of our deadliest sins, which is pride. We like to think that it's all about us. It's better that way. We automatically make ourselves the hero of our own story. But we have to take time to break it down and see that we're not the hero. God is. You know, I want to give you kind of an application for this. The idea that it's not about me, it's about God with a story of my own life. Um, Just disclaimer before I say it, I talk about lawyers in here. Uh, For all of you who are lawyers in the crowd or want to be lawyers, you guys are great. Um, There's nothing wrong with being a lawyer. I know hundreds of lawyers who who do incredible things for the kingdom. But I want to talk about a story of my own heart. You know, when I was growing up, um, I loved to debate. 
like from a very young age, anything my parents said, I was like, really? Let's kind of challenge them a little bit, debate on it. And so as I was growing up, I kind of learned that that's what lawyers do, is they debate. And I was like, that sounds fun. I should be that, thinking that that was the only qualification, is you had to debate people. And so I kind of set that as my trajectory, kind of went through high school, kind of planning out where I was going to go based on that. And as I was doing that, my heart started to turn. My heart started thinking about all the things that I could get from being a lawyer. I knew they made money, lots of money. So I was like, oh, I could buy nice cars. I could buy a nice house. I could go on lavish vacations. And so my heart turned toxic. And it wanted to follow the way that, like, I could be successful, I could be wealthy. Then I had a moment in my life where everything just kind of flipped. I had a chance to go to India um, as a high schooler with uh, a couple friends of mine in my school. And while we were in India, I saw poverty so deep that I can't, I can't convey it. I saw people living literally on top of each other with waste running in the streets. But one image is always stuck in my brain from that trip. We went out kind of outside the city that we were in. Um, to visit some lepers. These people had leprosy and the Indian government had to kind of quarantine them and put them in a housing complex outside of the city. And so these people were living day by day out here with hardly any social interaction besides the people that were inside. And we went door to door talking with these people, asking about their lives. And I remember one man in particular he didn't, his wife had leprosy, he did not, and they had four children. And I remember asking him, what can I pray for you? What can I do to help you? What can I pray for you about? And his words haunt me to this day. He said, pray that I will find food for dinner tonight because we ran out of lunch. When I got back, I couldn't, I couldn't justify what I wanted with what I had seen. I saw people poorer than poor, but happy. And I was chasing after stuff. I couldn't do it. God flipped me 180. And said, hey, it's not about you and what you want. It's about what I'm calling you to do. And I'm not telling you the story because I'm a perfect example because I'm so flawed. But I'm sharing it to show you how God can transform you and put you on mission. You know, this the story culminates. Me and my wife, um, 
being called to the nations. From that point, I gave my life and we've given our marriage to reach the people who don't know the name of Christ, wherever they may be. And I'm not going to lie to you, it's, it's hard. It's really, really hard at times. We've had to sacrifice things we've loved. We're going to have to sacrifice so much more. But in the end, it is so worth it. Because I can't stand in front of the creator of the earth and say, God, look at my stuff. Look at my house. Look at my car. This is what I've done with what you've given me. Today, I encourage you, if this is the first time you've thought about this, let's say, no, it's not about me, it's about God. And how how can I get on his mission? I pray you struggle with that. Wrestle through it and how it, what it means to your life. Maybe you need to go somewhere. Maybe you need to act differently here. But in closing, I want to give you just a quick test. The test is, does your relationship bring glory to God? The relationships you're in right now, are they making God's name glorified among the nations, among your community? Your job. Maybe you have a great job right now, pays well, but are you making a difference for the kingdom? How you handle your finances. If I were to look at your bank account, does your bank account say that you're about you? Are you about what God's doing? How about how you spend your time? Is the majority of, t- of your time spent to make yourself feel good? Or is it flipped and gospel-centered? And finally, does your life mimic that of Christ? Guys, I pray that we, that I see Christ as more than a miracle maker and something to make my life whole. that he has called me and he has transformed me not so that I can be happy but I can I can make his name glorified maybe today you don't know Christ maybe today you're in here saying yes I have I have a hole in my heart I'm missing purpose I pray you come talk to me or Mike or to any member of the staff to talk to us. But for those of us who are believers in this room, we have a challenge. Just like Bonhoeffer, it's either we change direction or we continue. 
God, let us hear the warning. Let me pray. Father, God, how big you are. God, that you created everything. And yet, God, still love us. God, that you didn't have to save us. you did so that we could be a part of your work. Father, I pray that as we live in the tension of how we change our lives from being about us to about you, God, we would hear from you. God, that maybe today you would speak to us so clearly and so vividly that we can't be the same tomorrow. privilege it is to be a part of your mission 